Empower Radio presents the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show, all things connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion, or as Einstein says, delusion of separation. So today we continue our series on codes for a healthy earth, cultivating peace with all of life. The urgent and complex global challenges we face will not be resolved from within the same systems and consciousness that created them. Many of the proposed solutions to climate change rely on the same thinking that brought us to the crisis and cannot move us forward. Our guest today suggests that the ecological crisis is calling us to a deeper kind of revolution. Its strategy involves restoring what the modern world and its institutions have rendered nearly extinct, our felt understanding of the living intelligence and interconnectedness of all things. Mm, I invite you to open your mind and heart and settle into your essential wholeness as I introduce our guest. Charles Eisenstein is a speaker and writer focusing on themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. His viral short films and essays online have established him as a genre-defying social philosopher and countercultural intellectual. A graduate Yale, he is the author of The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, Sacred Economics, The Ascent of Humanity, and climate, a new story. So I'm so happy to welcome Charles Eisenstein back to the show. Welcome, welcome, Charles. Well, thank you, Dr. Julie. Mm, Thank you. You know, last time you were here, we talked about the last book, Climate, a New Story. And so this show today feels really good because we've already really covered a lot of this information and your book is so powerful and now kind of pairing it with this conversation about the codes for a healthy earth today feels just so um, coherent here. So, but Charles, you've been on my show before and you know I have a traditional first question. I like to ground our conversation into the larger whole worldview. And before I ask that first question, I want to read that quote again that I shared in the introduction because I'm going to add a twist to this first question. You wrote, the ecological crisis is calling us to a deeper kind of revolution. Its strategy involves restoring what the modern worldview and its institutions have rendered nearly extinct, our felt understanding of the living intelligence and interconnectedness of all things. So Charles, can you share with our listeners, what is that felt understanding of all things connected? It's one of those things that everybody knows what I'm talking about when I mention it, because that experience is just part of being human. So it might be, for for us, it may not be a daily thing. It might be submerged under the to and fro of modern busyness. But I I hesitate to really try to define it or say, here's what it is to convert that 
into a concept when you already know what I'm talking about. That feeling when you're outdoors and it just is so obvious that that the sun is watching you and that you're not only hearing the birds, they're aware of you as well. And that there's a presence in the land, in the trees, that everything is present to each other. That's that's the feeling I'm talking about. And and I could say more, but you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love that you preface your response with that because I find that same thing. When I mentioned that that sense of interconnectedness as that experience, it, I, I often say it's the experience of our wholeness. And it is that interbeing that you talk about. And when I say it's a felt sense, it's a it's an experience, people go, oh. And you know, it once we work with people really to come into that experience, it's like they get so much more of that bigger story that we're talking about here. Yeah, I mentioned interbeing, and I know you've um, used that term a lot. You use it in your book, and um, you, you mentioned that it comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. I'd love for you to just bring that idea of really changing this narrative that we're talking about, that things aren't separate, and this this story is kind of going away, and we're entering into this new new stage. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. So interbeing, um, it's more than just interconnectedness or interdependency, but it says that our very existence uh, is a function of our relationships. That um, to use the um, uh, African, uh, the Ubuntu formulation of it is, I am because you are, which means that even if we find some kind of substitute for the functions of nature in growing our food, providing our habitat and so forth, even if we could leave nature behind and enter a fully technological world, killing all the rest of life, something would still be lost because the beings out there are our own being as well. And they're thriving as part of our own thriving. And what we do to them, we're actually doing to ourselves, not necessarily in any direct way. Like it's not that if we kill the whales, we'll die. Or if we kill the monarch butterflies, then we will die. But a part of us will die. Our experience of life will be less alive, the less life there is around us. So that's that's one way to describe interbeing. Mm. You, you know, I was on a call this week when someone was talking about there being um, less than a handful of a type of rhinoceros that was on the cover of Time magazine, I think. Mm-hmm. The northern white rhino, I believe. Thank you. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, the northern white rhino. All the males and- were extinct. Only the fema- There was only a few females left. That's what I hear. The last yeah. one was passing, right? The last one was mm-hmm. dying, the last male. And there was a couple of females. Yeah. So on this call, there was this sense of grief. When, when the person held up that Time magazine and was sharing her sense of grief, we all felt that like, wow, what's happening? So yeah, did you want to jump in here? I heard you. 
I, oh. I heard something. No. Hi. I. I mean, I could jump in, <laughs> but continue if you wanted to finish your thought, and then I can take my turn. Okay. Perfect. So the idea of this interbeing, I love when you brought up, you know, the the monarch butterflies or the whales. It's like, um, you part of your voice and how I hear your message that is brilliant is that when we can feel that interbeingness, when we feel that, uh, I like that you also clarify that it's more than interdependent and interconnected. It really is that we are part of one whole planetary body. We are part of one consciousness here as the science is showing. So when we feel the loss, it makes us look at the world different. So I'm I'm curious about your prescription of moving forward as we're looking at feeling and experiencing the inner being. You talk about that inner climate needing to to shift. And we can do that from that place of feeling and experiencing and then see the world in a different way and really become caretakers, stewards, custodians in a whole new way. So mm-hmm. I'm going to just be quiet because I don't know where I'm going now, Charles. So I'm going to let you jump in here. Yeah. So do a little thought experiment. Suppose that I could make an airtight rational case that we do not need the white, the northern white rhino or that we do not need the monarch butterfly, that everything will be fine without them. Then it becomes a choice of, would you rather live in a world with or without these magnificent creatures? Now, it turns out, though, that this is not a um, a split between our emotional, sentimental aesthetics and a hard-nosed practicality. Because in fact, again and again, what we discover is that those beings that we relegated to the ranks of the unnecessary or the superfluous, the dispensable, whether these are human beings or other than human beings, in the end, it turns out that they are actually necessary and important for the well-being of all. It's just that we didn't understand that. So this would be maybe like, who knows what the ecological role of northern white rhinos is? Um, Who knows how they alter vegetation patterns? I mean, these are enormous animals. They root around with their horn. You know, I don't know exactly very much about white rhinos, but they are part of a larger intelligence and they have just as much a role in an ecosystem as a certain tissue type has in your body. So it turns out that our sentiment and our science actually point us in the same direction, that our our thriving is, is connected. I won't say that our survival is necessarily connected. Uh, I think we talked about this last time that I, I don't believe that the nature of the current crisis is whether we are going to survive or not. Um, it's really how we are going to survive and whether we are going to step into a participation rather than a domination in our relationship to the rest of life. So our, our participation, then it brings up the question, participate in what? And that is a very fruitful question 
because that leads to why are we here? What do we want to create in partnership with the planet and all of life? Um, who do we want to become? And this, these are the kinds of questions that I don't think that our society provides us any answers right now. Uh, there are old, unsatisfying answers. The answer of the technological lords and masters of reality. Um, but that progress toward that has not given us for many decades, at least, progress toward more fulfillment and more happiness. But you could argue the contrary. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I listened to you and you, you spoke of the larger intelligence. And in that quote, we talk about the living intelligence. I would love to hear you just speak to your understanding of our relationship with this living intelligence that, again, in in this story of separation, as you call it, the worldview of separation, the illusion of whatever we want to call this, when we see ourselves separate from the planet, from other beings, from these beautiful white rhinos and the monarch butterflies, when we see ourselves separate from that, we also really see ourselves separate from the, the designing intelligence of all this life as well. I'm wondering how you can share, would you share more about the relationship with this larger living intelligence? Well, the existing, the, the, the story that I was born into doesn't have a role for a larger intelligence. Um, there is, of course, so in, in, in science, basically, I grew up in the religion of science, which offers an account of how the world came to be and what our role is in it. Just like every religion it has a creation myth, it has metaphysical assumptions called reductionism in this case, um, uh, force-based causality and so forth. It has, well, I could go on. It has a priesthood. It has invisible entities that whose existence the priests tell us about called electrons and things like that. Uh, anyway, I was born in this uh, scientific ideology that said life came about through a concatenation of random coincidences that our genes program us to maximize reproductive self-interest, that our consciousness is a byproduct of brain activity, and so forth. Nowhere in this story is there a place for any kind of designing or alive universe. Now, many people didn't grow up in that religion. They grew up in, in the religion of, say, Christianity or something that does posit a organizing intelligence. But in most religions, the organizing intelligence is also outside of matter, imposing design or imposing intelligence onto a world that in and of itself does not have any. In a way, that viewpoint is consistent with science. Both of them say, yeah, yeah, the world is just a thing. But religion says, oh, but there's this other principle outside of the world in the spiritual realm, not the material realm. But we agree with you, scientists, about the material realm. What I've come to is that both of them are occupying a story that is a poison to the world. 
And where we really need to go is to embrace the inherent, imminent intelligence and will or, or natural move toward order, toward organization of all things. So it's not that divinity is outside of materiality. It's inherent. It's embedded in materiality and that the world, therefore, is worthy of our reverence as a sacred being, regardless of whether some external spirit is present. In other words, the world is sacred. Everything is sacred because it is alive, because it is unique, because it is a being. It is ensouled. It is soul. It's not a container for soul. It is soul. That is the reverence that I think is necessary for us to really transition out of the ecological crisis. Because as long as underneath we're treating the world as something to be manipulated, as an engineering project, then we're never going to be coming from the place of reverence that's necessary for true right relationship. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And so let's just, let's just kind of pull that out a little bit more because when, when you talk about the ecological crisis, if we're not going to look at this with the reverence, I love that instead of a engineering project, because that's where we've been. Um, it also holding that, sacred, inherent divinity as within material also then points us inward. And, and you do talk about we're also not going to restore the external ecosystem if we're not looking at our own internal ecosystem. Can you expand on that? Yeah. You know, you, you uh, in the video you showed me um, the codes uh, yeah, what's it codes for health. Codes for healthy earth. Yeah, yep. codes for healthy earth. Yeah, you had a clip of Greta uh, Thunberg, um, and and you know I really um, think that she is quite a powerful voice, uh, remarkably intelligent and and a big spirit. Uh, but in the uh, discourse that that she and Extinction Rebellion are putting out. There's this kind of, um, well, quite quite blatant shaming of past generations or of pretty much everybody of the politicians for not doing what they should know that they should do. And I was thinking when I heard that, I'm like, you know, suppose you're talking to an addict and you try to... Um, essentially emotionally coerce them into quitting by by pointing out with uh, condemnatory tones the way that they're hurting their family, the way that they're hurting their loved ones, hurting their community, hurting their their own health. And, and why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? You should know better. The implication being, if I were you, I wouldn't be doing such foolishness. If I were in charge, I would be a much better person than you are. I don't think that that kind of condemnation actually ever brings good results because the cause of the addiction is not that they are bad or weak people. They're not morally deficient. They're not a lesser soul than you are. It's that they are 
in a uh, set of conditions that are that go back through a long through their entire lives and maybe before a set of conditions that that present them with unmet needs that they do not know how to meet and they are in pain they have these wounds that generate unmet needs for basic human uh intimacy for connection for just to feel okay in your body like these basic needs if those needs are unmet then the addictions are they provide a substitute for the unmet needs so maybe if for example somebody's really lonely and their only easy access to a feeling of connection with the universe is to overeat to put that food in your mouth and right now as i'm eating i am connected and i am existent i'm in a tangible material relationship with the world and the need is temporarily met but if that person does not develop true community or true intimacy then it will require endless amounts of food to temporarily assuage the pain of that unmet need so this is a, a basic template for addictiveness that we could you know i could talk about about any addiction in those terms so here we have an entire culture that has grievous unmet needs uh that have that be, that come from our separation over millennia from nature and from community if you take somebody and you that that feeling we talked about at the beginning um, the, of the presence of nature and the daily experience of interaction with nature if you deprive somebody of that and lock them indoors which is essentially what we do to children i mean my yeah. six-year-old i mean we've tried different schooling things and you know, now he's in this charter school they're indoors except for 15 minutes a day some kids don't even get recess you know so and 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 it's not only being outdoors and interacting with nature as a spectacle it's also getting your hands dirty it's a give and take it's doing something to the soil and see what happens um and and it, you know it's not just about taking a hike in the woods uh so our entire technological digitized lifestyle separates us from one of our deep human needs which is to be intimate with other beings beyond ourselves and i could also talk about the dissolution of community so we have these base conditions and of course then we have an insatiable appetite for fossil fuels and for the products that are produced by those fossil fuels which all of them are false compensation for serious unmet needs so if you go and condemn people for meeting their needs the best way that they can without examining the origin of that um addiction you're not going to get anywhere now to her credit i'm not you know i'm not um greater greater thunberg does talk about uh the problem is everything so she's not just about condemnation but i believe that i don't know i have doubts about whether that uh strategy is actually going to make a difference in the long run because sometimes condemnation can actually worsen the um alienation mm. and the self-rejection that lies at the core of many addictions 
So basically what I'm saying is that the problem is everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, um, I, I just want to presence this too, as I'm listening to you. Thank you for that. And I know that you, um, you recommend that to have, I mean, to really look at how we've gone to war about my position is good and yours is bad or evil. And you talk about that. It's just, you know, the continuation of the problem of us othering, um, othering in quotes of, of, of really seeing someone as other than ourselves as other than the whole. And then mm-hmm. of course they're bad or not. Could you just speak briefly to that before we go on break? Because I think that's an important part of what you're bringing up here is I also saw some really brilliant impassioned speeches by Greta that were so full of passion. And I wish she wouldn't have brought the numbers and the science in that people could debate that because then there was the othering like, oh, the science is wrong. And look who's, uh, I mean, there was this whole pushback, but you're right about that addiction too. And, and what we were talking about was, was really healing that inner landscape. And I think it does begin with us looking at how we're othering one another. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the key foundation pieces of the old story, the story of separation, which is that the way to improve our lot in the world is to uh, gain more power to alter the world by the application of force. That's Newtonian mechanics. The, The more force you have at your disposal, the better you are able to insulate yourself from natural forces, to harness the forces of nature even, to dominate and outcompete your competitors, you're better and better off by winning a war on the other. So this, you can see this mentality play out in everywhere from US foreign policy to conventional medicine to agriculture with the killing of weeds and insects um, to even what is called spirituality, where it becomes about overcoming some bad thing. So this solution template of find the enemy and destroy the enemy or find the one cause that that generates everything else. Uh, For example, carbon in the paradigm of carbon reductionism, this is all part of the same mindset. And from if we're immersed in that mindset, then we then we habitually organize the world into the good guys and the bad guys. And we assume that the solution to our problems is to defeat the bad guys. That whole mindset, though, is part of the problem. The organizing of the world into good and evil, identifying ourselves as good and waging a war of domination over the evil, which was originally identified with the wild, this is the primary paradigm of civilization as we have known it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I could just sit and have this conversation with you for hours and hours and do a marathon, but we are going to take a quick break. <laughs> you are here listening with Charles Eisenstein. We're talking about, literally, we're going to move into how do we create this healthy earth that we're, we're all the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. I'll just drop that in right now. So when we come back, so much more with Charles Eisenstein and the codes for a healthy earth. We'll be right back. My dad came to live with us last month and you know, 
It's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging. Help. But so far, so good. I could really use just a little help. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Today, you ate Greek yogurt. You took the train. You wondered why people spend so much time reading celebrity blogs. You read a celebrity blog. You planned a workout. You skipped it. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a devastating earthquake shakes the community to the ground. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ed Council. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me, whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent. Brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I might look like an adult, like a person who could possibly be a parent, but I have no idea how to talk like one. And everyone knows that if you want to be a parent, you have to sound good when you say things like, Don't make me turn this car around. Or, Because I said so. Or, Don't make me come back there. I don't even really know what those things mean. But I know that I actually believed my parents when they said them to me. How did they manage to sound so convincing? Here we go. Don't make me come back there. No, that's not tough enough at all. Kids can sense weakness. Don't make me come back there. Ooh, yeah, that's better. In fact, that kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to listen to you practice your dad voice. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit adoptuskids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Adding light to the world, one heart at a time. This is Empower Radio. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by this conversation today, I invite you to share it with others and perhaps even listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where we you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also, stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. And we've brought the word, the term Codes for Healthy Earth in right before the break. Codes for Healthy Earth was co-initiated by Shelley Ostroff and Jan Golding with Together in Creation. The creation of this document was a collaborative process with leaders from diverse sectors in over 30 
countries. The framework can be freely adopted by any group or movement as a collective compass for coordinated citizen-led action toward the healing and regeneration of the planet and all its inhabitants. Please go to www.codes.earth to learn more about the codes and perhaps even endorse that. You can find that right there on the website. We are here today with Charles Eisenstein. I invite you to go to Charles' website, website, talking too fast, charleseisenstein.org. You'll find um, so much there, his podcasts, um, programs. There's there's just a, a lot of really brilliant resources right there on Charles's website. Again, that's charleseisenstein.org. Org. So, Charles, welcome back to the second half. As I was reading that about the codes, which I'm really happy to bring this out um, on for many different reasons, but the one thing that occurred to me there was just the citizen-led action toward the healing and regeneration of the planet and all its inhabitants. It just feels like that phrase follows up when we were talking about the rhinoceros, the whales, the, the monarch butterflies. And we, we didn't have a chance to, to really talk about what does Charles Eisenstein recommend moving forward? How do we organize? And then we'll get into, um, I'm really curious to hear um your response to the codes for a healthy earth. Well, I, I think I will start by saying I don't know how the, how we should organize, and I don't know what people should do. I have some principles, or you could even call them codes, that when people take them in, or you could even just call it information, that when people take it in, it changes their perception and it changes what they what is visible to them on their menu on their menu of choices uh, and it changes the place from which they choose uh, one of these is what we talked about in our last conversation the living earth paradigm when when somebody understands themselves as part of a living earth and understands their role as to participate in the healing of that earth including the healing of the human organ of the earth then Life choices take on a different cast. It doesn't necessarily tell you how to do it. It doesn't tell you how to extricate yourself from your you know, student debt or from your dead-end job or from your enslavement to health insurance or whatever your situation is. I'm, I'm not going to offer a formula. And I don't have a ready formula for society as a whole either, although I do have you know, some policy proposals and things like that. Uh, but, you know, as for how do we organize, uh, there are people out there who are genius at this. And I'm not, not really, I'm not, I don't, I don't have an answer as to the best way to organize. Uh, that's just what I'm, you know, what's what I can think of off the top of my head. I could go down different avenues, but I'll still be able to say that. No, I'm kind of smiling because you said um, there are people out there that are really genius at that. And then you kind of stuttered and I wanted to say, and I'm not one of them, like, and yeah. you're not one of them and that's okay. And that's the whole point of this conversation. So I'm going to bring in one of the things that I love about Codes for Healthy Earth is that literally it creates this framework that 
crosses national, cultural, and ideological boundaries. That it it it's just this this very concise document that has us agree that we're living on a living planet, really. And we wake up and go, oh, yeah, I agree that this is all really important. And then it encourages us to step into what's ours to do, that that it has this self-organizing um, encouragement built right in that this is, you know, if you agree with this, what's yours to do now? Just go do what's yours to do. And um, then, of course, the codes will provide support and resources for for anyone that says i want a healthy earth and i want to be a part of the healing and transformation that's happening so um can Mm -hmm. you've read them i'm curious to hear what you think and maybe start beginning with that how they do cross national cultural and ideological boundaries to just get back to this um importance of ecological regeneration well, I, I really like th- that you're even bringing up the um, necessity for cooperation because in the like super conventional uh, climate discourse, like like the Al Gore um, branch of it, we're not given a lot to do, uh, partly because we're so accustomed to being alienated individuals, consumers and highly specialized producers and and citizens only in the sense of that we vote. Um, we're so used to that individualism that the prescriptions for how we can be part of the solution are also highly individualistic. So you can consume differently, change your, you know, into CFC light bulbs, for example, uh, which, by the way, are full of mercury and emit frequencies of light that are bad for the brain, but we won't go there. Or you could, you know, plant a garden. Um, you can do something like that. But as for organizing, uh, I mean, you're talking about a global level, but also on a local level, there are things that you cannot do by yourself that citizens together have the power to do. And then it gets messy. You know, we have where I'm living, we have a, a parcel of land across the street that's zoned light industrial. And so there's a developer who wants to do something with it, but then there's a groundwater overlay protection zone and it just gets, you get into the nitty gritty of local government and uh, township councils and planning commissions and zoning boards and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And so that's one very prosaic form of cooperation and and collective empowerment that has been kind of left out of the picture, there's you know a lot of people who will go to New York City and march in a climate protest, but not a lot who are going to run for the board of supervisors. <laughs> mm. So I, I think you know one of them is a lot more sexy than the other, uh, and allows much more of a crusading mentality. Uh, I guess I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question here. But it's just what's coming to my mind. And and then, of course, there are also, so that would be called working in the system. And then there's, you know, we have to recognize that that what a board of supervisors is capable of depends on higher levels of government, which ultimately are themselves highly constrained. 
Greta Thunberg talks, you know, she speaks to parliaments and 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 congresses and so forth. And I bet a lot of them in those in those gatherings are like, yeah, I agree with her. I wish I could do something about it, but the system won't let me. The opposition party won't let me. The the uh, campaign funders won't let me. The entrenched bureaucracy won't let me. My wiggle room is actually very small. The international bond markets won't let me. The financial markets, the stock market, they'll respond negatively if I do something. It'll crash the economy. Um, the the legal system doesn't allow this. We don't. I mean, people are not the people who we think have the most power in the world do not actually have that much power. Everybody, this is our situation. Everybody is stuck. Everybody is a victim and a puppet of a system that no person or no cohesive self-conscious group of people is in control of, which is one reason why conspiracy theories are so comforting. They make it seem as if somebody's in control of the whole thing. It's a lot scarier to realize that it is a machine, a Frankenstein that has taken on a life of its own. Mm. Yeah, thank you for yeah bringing that through because that does fuel a lot. Like we we feel like someone has to be in control and no one is. So I I would love to read this one um, piece of the declaration to you because you're talking about the need for whole systems change that really. Um, Everything that you just said in this last response is really um, bringing forward this need for whole systems change. And one of the declaration pieces in the Codes for Healthier says, and this one is radical. This is really radical. I'd love to hear your opinion. We affirm that the only legitimate purpose of governance is to protect and cultivate the health and vitality of the planet and all its inhabitants for generations to come. That's like the antithesis of what you just spoke of the system of, you know, and I'm not going to run for, I'm not going to run for Congress or I'm not going to run for city council and I'm, but I'm going to go, but that's, it's the exact opposite that the only legitimate purpose of governance is to protect and cultivate the health and vitality of the planet and all its inhabitants for generations to come. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with that. I mean, I could quibble with the only. Uh, I think right now, though, the 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 collective purpose of humanity has got to be to heal the damage that has been done over the last few centuries and millennia of what we call development. Um, after that healing has been accomplished, then we're at a new horizon, and maybe the purpose of governance. You know, maybe we will move on to some new kind of expression that as 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 healed beings and as a healed planet. After all, the purpose of life isn't just to stay healthy. So mm-hmm. there is there is something more than just healing and just staying healthy. And and really that comes down to to what is the purpose of life? There are times where I might sacrifice my health in service to something I really care about. And hopefully I have a chance to recover my health afterwards, but there's more to life than that. Sometimes you sacrifice your life for something you care about. So anyway, but I I do think that that statement that you made is a step in the right direction and it opens up the right conversation. So thank you for, for putting it out there. 
Yeah, thank you. And I, I hear you as this being one of the primary um, purposes of governance now, it, it, that this is this is really in this moment, um, a defining moment for us as we're stepping out of that old story and creating a more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. Why do you think, I mean, looking at, I'm like th- looking at the codes and how in alignment they are with, with so many voices. And the, the one thing that I really appreciate is that they become this aggregate of so many declarations, charters, manifestos, creeds, you know, that there's, there's so many things out there, um, different movements. Um, one time you told me on a phone call that we don't make a movement, a movement makes us. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciate that perspective. And as we're looking at the codes for a healthy earth and, and fueling this um, awareness of this living earth that we're talking about, um, the inner codes need to match the outer codes. And to me, this is a, a, a beautiful, concise aggregate of, you know, there's the, you know, people who are, are stewards of the water or the trees or the, you know, like you had already said, there's so many different constituents out here, different groups that are trying to get us to focus on pieces and parts. And we really do need the one whole system approach. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what to respond to in all that. Um, I mean, just at the very end, I mean, I do think that we also need to focus on the pieces and parts, just not in a way that says this piece or part is more important than all of the others. Yeah. Cause that runs contrary to the, to the understanding of interbeing that, that knows that everything matters from a carbon perspective from a from the climate perspective it might seem that working uh you know that 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 uh the climate strike is much more important than say uh reforming the foster care system there was a, one of the ads in our break was about was about uh becoming a foster parent you know and i've recently come become friends with with a couple who have a foster child and and you know, took them on from a situation of terrible, terrible abuse and neglect. And um, this, to to care for this child is a tremendous, tremendous investment of time and energy. You're not going to take on a foster child and also devote 25 or 30 hours a week to ending climate change. Mm. So I could see from the carbon accountancy mindset that, you know, we can't really afford to spend so much time on uh, abused and neglected children who've fallen through the cracks and to, to like, you know, that's kind of second priority because what does that matter if we don't survive? A whole system view understands, however, that what we are, the way that we treat the most vulnerable people necessarily mirrors the way that we treat the most vulnerable places and that they're all part of the same matrix and that the healing of any part is part of the healing of every part. Therefore, we can trust what we are called to do by our love and by our care, even if the mind cannot make the numbers add up. 
we have to follow something else. And I would say that what we can follow is deeply akin to how we began our conversation, uh, where we feel the presence of a living intelligence that pervades all things. That's what we are in communication with when we follow the call of our hearts to take a specific uh, healing action. And I think that, you know, I'm not saying that we should just ignore the whole system's understanding, um, because as our understanding grows of the interrelatedness of all things, then what calls to our care can evolve over time. And we also then can know ourselves as allies and uh, comrades in a tremendous healing enterprise. And we can recognize then the, the, the couple who takes the foster kid on as our allies in the same cause that somebody who's trying to save the uh, southern right, the southern white rhino, you know, which isn't yet extinct. Uh, we're all in this together without having to make mine more important than yours. And to say climate action is more important and we're the biggest heroes. You know, like part of the problem is the system that gives the, the most celebration to the people doing the big systems level um, visible things the people with the big platforms and and who are making changes that we can measure more easily. But what about the humble people? What about the invisible people? Keeping them, the, the, the system that makes them invisible and unrecognized and unthanked and uncelebrated, that is the same system of othering, the same system of devaluation and desacralization that is responsible for what we're doing to this planet. Mm. Charles, I just had this um, burning question emerge listening to your voices. A lot of the New Age movement um, has a sense of othering in it, within it, inherent within the New Age movement, if you would say. And so, so many people are, are talking about the new story and um, and what's happening on the planet. When I was listening to you just now, I'm curious, do we, from your point of view, I always love listening to your wisdom, from your point of view, do we focus on that new story and not bring the old story along? I mean, how do we really hold the clarity of the consciousness of the whole? Hmm. The, that like so often we can, even now, I don't, <laughs> one of my things is, is like, I see that story of separation everywhere that like, literally I could be co correcting myself speaking and others in their thinking, speaking, doing whatever constantly. Do we focus on that more beautiful world our hearts know as possible or do we continue to call out the separation Mm -hmm. As we're in the healing journey, this is a really yeah. important thing because some people say just focus on the positive. Others are so grounded in the negative. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, for one thing, it's not actually a new story that we're stepping into. It's a very ancient story that has been held by indigenous people and by wisdom traditions within the dominant culture. It's, it is also new in the sense that a mass civilization has never practiced it. So as far as 
calling out or correcting our our own and other people's um, attitudes and beliefs that are part of the old story. Calling out and correcting may not actually help anything. There might be circumstances where it does, but there might be circumstances where it's just falling into the pattern of going to war on, on somebody or seeking to change them through force. It might be more effective. This is what I aspire to, um, to be very observant of what words or actions are the right medicine for the right moment that meet a person even myself at the point of their readiness to make a change and to understand that the entire journey of separation on a personal and collective level is part of a larger process. It's not that humanity made this gigantic error at one point and turned evil and ate the forbidden apple and is, you know, needs to redeem itself. Uh, it's that that we've gone on a journey to explore a certain corner of being that we then bring back with us in an integration, enriched by the journey, coming back to wholeness. And this could get very theological. I mean, this is ultimately, it's the age old question of why did God create billions of little pieces of God's self that forgot who they were? Um, you know, theologians have talked about this, mystics have talked about this. I'm not going to go there. Uh, but I um, really just want to speak to the to the honoring of each person's journey and knowing that somebody who's coming from a place of anybody who you judge as just morally corrupt and and evil and sicko and just the, the people that we judge the most, why are they like that? It's because they've come from some kind of terrible circumstance that might be visible to us and it might not be very visible. You know, we might say, well, so-and-so, you know, grew up in the ghetto and was, was, you know, abused and so forth. But that guy over there, that he has no excuse. He's, you know, just entitled and, and privileged and he has no excuse for being such a prick that basically that, that, uh, diagnosis of he's just a prick, he's just a bad person, he's just inexcusable. That is a cover for not actually understanding that person and not willing to be curious for where that person's coming from. So really what I want to put out there is to see people with generous eyes and with curiosity so that we can understand their circumstances and speak to those circumstances and address those circumstances and be an agent of the changing of those circumstances. This is related to the addiction conversation too. Yeah. Yeah. That we're all in this together. I mean, really, we have to understand we're all in this together. And the people who have had the worst situations and are the, 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 the seemingly the most evil people, they're coming from, they're on a healing journey too. And Whatever they're healing from, they're doing that on behalf of everybody. On some soul level, they volunteered to be born into those circumstances so that that energy could be brought to a completion and no longer have to be here. Their healing journey is just as important as anybody else's. Mm.
Charles, that's why I love your wisdom. It's your, you stretch us, but with such gentle compassion. Thank you so much for joining us again today and bringing that, that compassionate wisdom to this conversation. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I, I uh, really appreciate your, your uh, listening and your questions and your, um, your brilliance. Oh, thank you, Charles. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together, we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now. <laughs>